Ever had one of those moments when you realize that somewhere along the line you crossed a line? That's where David finds himself today. Which is really weird because last chapter he was doing so great. He navigates through 3,000 mercenaries trained to kill him. He takes King Saul's property and says, hey, I could have killed you last night. King Saul's like, David, my son. I mean, it looks like David is on the top of the world. It looks like he has accomplished finally reconciling with his father-in-law. But what we find in chapter 27 is that he's worn out. He's worn out from trying. He's worn out from doing the right thing. He's worn out from just all the years of being chased by his angry, angry father-in-law. And he's got a lot of responsibilities. He's now trying to protect 600 families So it's not just protecting himself, keeping himself hidden. He's got the responsibility of providing for and protecting 600 families. And something happens between chapter 26 and 27. It happens beneath the surface. He breaks. He's worn out. The despair hits him in a way he didn't fully understand. And he makes a huge swing in a compromise. We won't find out fully about that until the chapter unpacks itself. But something has happened that's even hinted at here in the opening chapter. David begins to work for the Philistines. For the Philistines. He becomes a mercenary for, for, for Israel's enemies. And so why would he do that? What are some of the views of why he'd do that? Now one idea is to say, well, I guess treason's okay sometimes. That doesn't sound right. Maybe it's a desperate times call for desperate measures kind of thing. This is certainly not one of those passages where you look at it and say, all right, boys and girls, let's go live like David and abandon our country and work for the enemy as a mercenary. So what in the world is going on here in 1 Samuel chapter 27? It's pretty interesting because it begins by giving us a front, a front seat view of David's heart. It says, and David said in his heart, now I shall perish someday. You know what? Maybe not today, but someday by the hand of Saul. There's nothing better for me than that I should speedily escape to the land of the Philistines. And Saul will despair of me to seek me anymore in my part of Israel. So I shall escape out of his hand. Then David arose and went over with the 600 men who were with him to Achish, the son of Machach, king of Gath. Now, did you hear what happened there? He's worn out. You know what? He didn't kill me this time but he's going to kill me someday. Despair sets in. Despite what's happened, despite this victory again, I'm just eventually not going to make it. I've got to go someplace that Saul won't find me. And now the panic is setting in. He's got to escape. I've got to escape. I've got to escape no matter what or where I go. And he ends up escaping to the king of his enemies, the king of Gath, Goliath's hometown, the Philistines. Now, let me show you the map to show you kind of what this area looks like. So David is in Judah. Now, Judah is a little bit farther to the east than you might see uh, on a map in the Mediterranean. 
He's in Achaia. Now he crosses over an imaginary dotted line between the Israel territory and the Philistine territory in the area called Gath. Now he's eventually going to make a deal with the king. But for right now, he's just slowly crossed a dotted line. In fact, you were there today, you'd say there's a giant mound. And just behind this mound would be that imaginary dotted line between the territory of Judah and the territory of the Philistines. And as David crosses over there, he knows he's now disobeying God and he's crossed over a moral boundary because he wants to escape. Now, if you were there today with me, here's what it might look like. And as we're watching this video, I want you to ask yourself, is there something that happened three years ago, two years ago, a week ago, where your life looks the same on the outside, if anyone was, was looking at your life, but you know that that valley, that moment, that mound is when you began to cross a line. Here's what the uh, Elka Valley looks like today. Again, just a beautiful little area. You might take a hike here. You can see the mound coming up front. That's the mound that represents that dotted line. Do you have an area or time in your life that you went from texting back and forth with a friend who wasn't your spouse and you felt it? You crossed over a line that no one could see and you began to flirt. Did you notice late at night when you're feeling unappreciated by your spouse that you began to click on some websites and you felt it? You began to cross the dotted line. Here in this valley, you found yourself beginning to fudge some numbers because you felt like maybe your company wasn't paying you what you were entitled to. And so you found a way to reimburse yourself more than you deserved in the circumstance. Now, maybe nobody noticed the phone call, the text, the Facebook conversation, the finance report. But that was the moment that you felt in despair. You felt like, oh my goodness, I deserve more than I'm getting. And it's in that despair of realizing I'm eventually not going to get what I deserve unless I take things into my own hands that you crossed over a dotted line. See, what we see that David said is, right, I'm eventually not going to make it. Someday, it's eventually going to get to me. He's going to kill me. And that despair becomes the soil that grows the seeds of compromise. And we've got to watch our own hearts very carefully, like David didn't. Because when you begin to despair and feel self-pity for yourself, and I've been there. I don't deserve this. I shouldn't have to put up with this. It's in that soil, the seeds of compromise that you were so easily able to say no to in other circumstances and other times begin to grow and take you places and grow things in your life that you never imagined would be there. So today I want to look at four stages of compromise that grow out of the soil of despair. Let's look at the text together. The first stage we find as we're looking at the text is David begins the walk into despair from that feeling in his heart. So David, out of that despair, dwelt with Achish, King Achish, at Gath, the king of the Philistines. He and his men, each man with his household, 
And David with his two wives, and Noamum, and the Jezreelite, I never say these things right, and Abigail, the Carmelitess, Nabal's widow, remember her? And it was told Saul that David had fled to Gath, so he sought him no more. Now, a couple things to note here. Samuel's reminding us here, like hint, hint, wink, wink, this isn't David doing the right thing. Remember, David's taken two wives. Don't think David's in the right here in case it's not obvious. Notice he begins to dwell or live in the land of the Philistines. Now, why does he do it? Why do any of us do it? Because there's benefits. Notice each man in his household are gonna be protected. Just like he hoped, King Saul is not seeking him anymore. But Samuel wants us to know David is in compromise here, which is why he includes this detail. And because a couple chapters from now, something pretty bad is going to happen. Now, what is the first stage we get from this passage in those seeds of compromise growing? Stage one, we focus on the benefits of compromise, right? Whenever you and I have compromised, we began long before we crossed the line saying, you know what, I think it would be better if, it'd be better for the kids if my wife and I weren't fighting all the time, maybe we should go ahead and think about the benefits of divorce. We begin to think about, you know what, my intimate life isn't what I hope it is. Maybe I can supplement it with, with this pornography. And so we start thinking, yeah, this will make me feel better, release some stress. This will keep my wife and I from fighting so often. Right? We do that. We begin to focus on the benefits of compromise. Yeah, if I could reward myself in ways I'm not being rewarded, I think I... Uh, Think I'd feel better? I'm not hurting anyone but myself. How about you? Have you found yourself beginning to fantasize or entertain or indulge in? I haven't compromised yet, but I'm imagining the benefits of compromising. And it's that soil that the seeds are being dropped into. Yeah, I think Saul wouldn't chase me around so much if I crossed over that line. But here's the thing about seeds. Seeds are the kind of things that when you plant them, you don't know exactly where they're gonna end up. I remember when I was uh, in high school, we went to this uh, river and we had a, a time of swimming and boating there. We got to this river, it's a very, very narrow river, maybe like 30 feet across, but very, very long. And as I was looking at this river, it's a very strange looking river. And I've boated on the river most of my life growing up in central Illinois. And I still boat here in the Ohio River. This was a very, very small river. And it went kind of all directions that way and all directions that way. I said, hey, what's the story with the river? And they said, well, it used to have no cover on it. Meaning there was no grass, no lily pads, and so they didn't have a lot of great fishing in the river. So someone decided, you know what would help if we just dropped in a few seeds, some lily pad seeds. We'd have a little bit more cover, we'd be able to fish a little bit more, and people would enjoy the river and the real estate value would go up because people would enjoy our river, not just as a river, there's a place to go fishing. So sure enough, many years earlier, 
they flew a plane with lily pad seeds in it over the river and dropped them along the river. And sure enough, boop, pop, pop, pop. Lily pads everywhere. Now, initially it worked great. Fish were going under the lily pads, people were able to fish. Fast forward a couple years to when I was there. The lily pads took over. There were lily pads everywhere. In fact, the lily pads had taken over the entire width of the river, 30 feet across and as far as you could see. And now the homeowner association every year had to hire a boat with with cutters on both ends of it, custom-made boat that would go through the channel of the river and cut through the long, long lily pads because these seeds grew 10, 20, 30 feet to the top And then they spread out all over the river. See, that's what happens when you begin to focus and I begin to focus on the benefits of compromise. We don't see the consequences of compromise. What if this compromise took over my life? Catch yourself. Examine your thoughts. Are you entertaining the benefits of compromise right now. What's the second stage? Then David said to Achish, if I have now found favor in your eyes, let them give me a place. Let them, the the Philistines, give me a place. Oh, I'd long for a place. I'm tired of living in caves. I'm tired of running all over the place. I just long for a place of rest, a place, right? Who could fault David for these feelings? He just wants a place. In some town or some country that I may dwell there, I can sit, I can rest, I can not be on the run. For why should your servant dwell in the royal city with you? Listen, I know I'm not worthy to sit in the royal city with you, king. Just give me some piddly little town. I just want a place to sit. So Achish gave him Ziglag that day. It's the name of a town. Therefore Ziglag has belonged to the kings of Judah to this day. Now the time that David dwelt in the country of the Philistines was one full year and four months. So how long has David been in compromise? He's been here for at least one year and four months. He's been working for the Philistines. One year and four months, he's been out of God's will, as we'll see in a moment. One year and four months, he has made significant compromises. Because number one, he saw the benefits of compromise. And number two, what's the second stage? Well, here he is in Ziglag. He saw something he needed, he wanted, he longed for that God wasn't providing in Judah. This little bitty town of Ziglag is where he found himself. It's now just a big mound, a big tell. But he was willing to compromise for 600 people just to be able to not be hiding. Which is understandable, right? It's understandable. But that's the second stage. When we find a place to live and compromise. We gotta find a place 
When you and I go to find a place to dwell or to live in compromise, it usually happens almost everyone I've talked to the same way. It's isolation. I begin to pull away from people who might challenge me. I begin to pull away from people. I begin to isolate myself from other people. I'm no longer near people who could tell me what God has to say about this, challenge the decisions I'm making. I'm like, you know what? It's just so great to live and dwell in Ziglag. However, while you're dwelling in Ziglag, the clock is running and the clock is ticking. It's now been a year and four months since you've prayed, since you've sought God, since you've confessed sin. And it's in this stage of isolation from others and isolation from God that the soil begins to continue to grow other seeds of compromise. I'm a volleyball player. And so I've been playing volleyball, sand volleyball in particular, for years. And one of my best friends, many, many years ago, about 20 years ago, we played volleyball together all the time. So we played two-on-two and four-on-four sand. He was a friend of mine. And not only was he a good friend and a fellow volleyball player, he also was a professional counselor. And I remember early on in my marriage, I went to chat with him just about some areas I wanted to grow in, some areas I wanted his advice in. And of all the areas we were talking about, how to be more sensitive to my wife, how to you know, be careful about the words I chose, one of the topics that came up was just how to integrate and get on the same page with, uh, with our intimacy. And what are the times when, when I'm more in the mood than she is and how can we be sensitive to that? And I remember that conversation because it suddenly his, his face went blank. It was weird because we would talk about a lot of topics, but it was like he was very uncomfortable with this topic, which might be true of most people, but a counselor? And I think what struck me that day is I didn't think a lot about it, but I thought, oh, well, he's not feeling comfortable with this conversation, so I dropped it. Fast forward to the volleyball game. It's been five years. So we got done talking that day after volleyball. He began to unravel a story. And the story began that he'd recently gotten married and the secret had come out. That for many, many years he had a pornographic addiction. But even that seed continued to grow like those lily pads. What's going on? He started going to massage parlors. And those led to relationships, which led to affairs. And here was somebody I thought I knew really well. Someone who would call themselves a Christian, someone who would call themselves, someone who's trying to seek after God and help other people seek after God. And I remember as he's having this conversation, and I began to hear all the details of what's going on. And he began the journey of beginning to confess and move back toward God. I remember thinking to myself, oh, wow. Even several years earlier, I could tell he was uncomfortable with this subject. I could tell that he had a lot of shame and guilt under this subject. And he'd been hiding all this time. See, often we don't see it in the moment. It's when we look backwards, we say, oh, wow, I, I was hiding something. I was dwelling in zigzag. I was dwelling in shame. I was dwelling in secrets. I was dwelling in quiet. And in the seeds of my despair, guilt and shame and all of these entangling patterns happen. And thank goodness, in the next couple of years of his life, he did 
begin to confess. He did begin to repent. And it was amazing how God began to just break free and take him out of this zigzag city of shame he'd been living in and move toward health and toward freedom. And God can do that. But boy, wouldn't it be better to catch ourselves at stage two than to tangle into the later stages of compromise? Once again, look at the text. What happens next in David's life as the soil of despair continues to grow those seeds of compromise? Well, David and his men went up and raided. And the word raided means to strip the dead for loot. So remember, he's a mercenary now. So he and his men are mercenaries for the Philistines, killing people and stripping them for loot. And the ones they attack specifically are the Geshuites, the Gizites, and the Amalekites. For those nations were inhabitants of the land from the old. As you go to Shur, even as far as the land of of Egypt. Wherever David attacked the land, and he left neither, look at this, man nor woman alive. David's not just killing the people in war. He's killing everyone who lives there. That sounds wrong. But he took away the sheep, the oxen, the donkeys, the camels, and the apparel, and returned and came to Achish. Why is he killing everyone off, even the innocent? Wow, David is really heading down and has headed down a terrible path. Well, here's what's happened. Remember, he moved over to Gath, and Gath has several enemies. The Geshites right here near the Mediterranean Sea, the Amalekites just a little bit to the east of them, and then Judah is over here. Now remember, the Philistines are enemies with Judah, and Judah is the southern portion of Israel. So David is going to take these attacks on the Geshurites and attacks on the Amalekites because he is setting up a deception. He's going to try and convince the king of, of, of Gath, the king of the Philistines, that these people he's killing aren't just Amalekites and aren't just Keshurites. He's going to try and convince them he's been killing off Israelites. Now he hasn't yet, but he wants the king to think that he has so the king knows he's got allegiance to him and not to the Israelites. It's a very, very deceptive web he's weaving here. And the reason he's having to kill off all of the witnesses in the Geshurites and Malachites is so no one can say that there were no Israelites that he'd killed there because he's forming a deception. Then Achish would say, where have you made your raid today? And the king would say, against the southern area of Judah. Now that's true, he was in the southern area of Judah, but he was to the west of that. But he wants the king to think he's been killing off Israelites, even though he's been killing off Amalekites and Gesuites. Or against the southern area of the Jeharamites, or against the southern area of the Kenites. David would save neither man nor woman alive. See, he could have done it, but he didn't save them to bring news to Gath. He doesn't want them to tell on him, saying, lest they should inform on us, saying, thus David did such and such. Do you see the pattern? David, early in his career here, is beginning a pattern of deception and lying and hiding what he's done to create an impression in someone else's mind. Now the seeds of this are gonna grow, 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 and we won't fully see them formed until the book of 2 Samuel. What do I mean? Think about it. 
Stage three, he's hiding the evidence of compromise in his own life. He's hiding it. That's what we do. Now that we've dwelt there, now that we're experiencing that, we're hiding it so people don't know about that secret bank account. I only lie once a month. Well, I only, I only deceive weekly. I only gossip weekly. I only check out porn once a month, once a week. I only drink to calm down every night. We begin to hide those secret bank accounts, hide those credit cards. We begin to hide things, the areas of compromise. And look what he did. Lying, murder, hiding, and fear. And that's the phrase from the text. Lest they inform on me. Doesn't this set the stage for exactly what David will do with Bathsheba and Uriah later in life? He'll have an affair. He'll lie about it. When that doesn't work, he murders Bathsheba's husband, Uriah, in order to hide and the fear of being found out, lest he informs. And while here he's killing enemies, he will eventually kill one of his best friends because of the compromises he's made. Do you know who Uriah is? David was the king of Israel, and he has an affair with Bathsheba. Now Bathsheba is also the granddaughter of his top advisor, Ahithophel, who's known to be the wisest man in the kingdom. And Ahithophel, or Ahithophel rather, who has been David's confidant for many, many years, is going to turn against David and go with the rebellion of Absalom. Why? Because he saw David have an affair with his granddaughter Bathsheba, who was married to one of David's mighty men. David had 52 best friends. 52 guys who've been with him through thick and thin. And Uriah is one of them. And he will stab his best friend in the back, murder him and have him killed. Why? To hide what was going on in his life. And all of the seeds of that compromise began back here in 1 Samuel 27. Reminds me of a quote I came across years ago. It's a quote that reminds us that while we're focusing on the benefits and hiding all the things we're doing, we need to remember that what we're entangling with, what we're wrestling with, what we're teasing ourselves with, what we're playing with is fire. Here's the quote. Sin will take you farther than you wanted to go, keep you longer than you wanted to stay, and cost you more than you wanted to pay. I didn't intend to go that far. I didn't intend to stay that long in that season. I didn't intend to pay that much. It wasn't going to hurt anyone, or at least just me, not my spouse, not to see tears coming out of my kids' eyes, not to lose my job, right? And what's the fourth stage? Well, look what happens in David's life. Thus was his behavior all the time. There it is. Now all the time. He went from doing it once a week, once a day, several times an hour, to now he's become his compromise all the time. He dwelt in the country of the Philistines. So Achish believed David saying, he made his people Israel utterly abhor him. Look, he's been attacking the Israelites. Therefore, he'll be my servant forever. Now it happened. In those days that the Philistines gathered their armies together for war against the Israelites to fight with Israel. And Achish said to David, you assuredly know that you will go out with me to battle 
against his own people, you and your men. All the time, he's now going to battle the very people of God. Here he is. They're, they're meeting here at this mound to go, and David is about to go and attack the people God called him to lead. I hope you and I are never here, but I've sat with many people who are. How did I get here? How did I end up in this place where I'm about to fight against the things I said I valued? See, stage four, you become your compromise consistently. I've become a lie. I've become a gossip. I've become someone who tells stories that aren't true and I have to pretend I am what I said I was. I've become duplicitous. For a year and four months, I've got the public version of me and the private version of me, and that dual-mindedness is breaking me. But see, we can f- rewind. The first thing we want to look at before those seeds grow, it looks at your own heart. Are you in a place where David's at, where you've allowed the, the soil of despair, right, to set the stage to grow those seeds of compromise? What's the condition of your heart today? Remember where David began in the beginning of chapter 27? He got to that place of despair. Poor me. I'm worn out. I shouldn't have to put up with this. God's not going to come through. I'm still going to be pursued. And it was that despair, right, that created the soil to grow the seeds of compromise. How's your heart doing today? Are you allowing despair to come in? How could we not? With all the bad news around us, all the seemingly hopelessness around us, all of us would be tempted to have more despair in our life, which would set the stage. But invite God in. In fact, show the weeds in your life to the gardener of grace. A lot of us have a secret garden back here. It's a garden we don't want anyone to know about because we're not proud of it. We're not master gardeners back there, if you know what I'm saying, right? Those are the areas we have secrets, compromises, things we hide. But the beautiful thing about Jesus is he came to earth to die for you and I and for those weeds, for those compromises, for those things we're hiding. And God is a master gardener and he is a gardener of grace who wants to come into your life and begin to until and yank out some weeds and some seeds and grow something beautiful. In fact, in John chapter 15, he describes his father that way, Jesus does. Jesus says, I am the the true vine, but my father is the vine dresser, the gardener. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that bears fruit, he prunes it, right? He's pruning, he's trying to make it better so that it will bear more fruit. God's not your enemy. And even though you've got the shame of things you've done or you've been thinking about doing or crossed some lines, some dotted lines you've crossed, God wants you to invite him into that garden of weeds so he can begin to till it and yank it and regrow it and to put hope where there's despair, to put dancing where there is only mourning. That's what the garden of grace does and that's what we're about as a church. 
Yeah, the reason we have authentic manhood is because we know men need other men in their life to begin to look at the condition of their heart and learn new skills and, and begin to say, how do I move in God's direction? I've talked to a lot of folks recently who have made some compromises. One incredible success story is a friend who had really made some significant compromises out of despair in his own marriage. I got him connected to a couple of buddies at our church who have been in Bible study with him. And he has begun to find liberation because of the connections of being comfortably connected to God at Horizon that he hadn't had in 40 years. His relationship with his wife is flourishing when four or five years ago it was in despair. As he's began to grow closer to God and deal with some shame and guilt in his life, he's finding that some of the weeds that grew between he and his, his sons God's yanking those out because now he's not hiding or pretending to be something he's not. He can be honest about his struggles and honest about his own brokenness with his sons. And it's creating bonds, uh, uh, connections that he didn't have before. But it's also creating freedom in ways he didn't expect. In fact, as he's learning to depend on the fruit of God's spirit, he said that God encouraged him to begin to forgive his father for things his father didn't do years ago. He made a phone call to his dad and and. His dad didn't necessarily respond the right way. But he decided, I'm going to forgive my dad for what he did do and what he is doing because my heavenly father forgave me. If you talk to him today, he would just say he's so much freer. He's read through the Bible multiple times at this point. And God is using the seeds of his word to grow hope and joy and patience and self-control in ways he's never experienced before. And that's what I want for you. I want you to look at the soil in your life and invite God to till that and turn that and, and recreate in that a garden you can be proud of. Proud not because you did it. You're humble enough to say, I couldn't do it. All I grow is weeds. But when I invited the gardener into that spot, oh my goodness, could he create something beautiful in my life. That's why Jesus came, to die for all those things you're hiding so you'd invite him in and he could make you flourish. Don't you want to flourish? I do. And I know when I'm in despair, I am not flourishing. When I'm in compromise, I'm not flourishing. So maybe you want to pray along with me. Can I pray for you? Just pray these words. Say, God, I admit I've crossed some lines and I've made some compromises. And I want to show you the weeds right now, Father. These are weeds you died for and I accept your gift of salvation on the cross. But God, I need your leadership. I invite you to come in and forgive me, to lead me, to grow me. Father, I want to flourish again with you, with my spouse, with my kids, or with my career. Help me to live in truth because only the truth can set me free. We ask these things in Jesus' name, amen.